condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Behind the Headlines. It is May 28th. I'm your host for today, Harrison Cayley. Joining me in the studio is Elon Martin. Hi, everyone. And shortly, Joe Quinn will be joining us as well um, in just a little bit. But before Joe gets to us, maybe we'll start with a little summary of some of the events that we're, that we're going to be covering on the show that took place over the last week or so, probably the biggest um, on everyone's minds and in the media is the suicide bombing at the Ariana Grande concert in Manchester several days ago. So maybe I'll just start out by giving a description of what we think happened um, for those that haven't been following on following the news about it. So at the concert, there was a, there were initial reports of an explosion that weren't uh, confirmed immediately, but very soon after were confirmed. And within just a matter of hours, various news outlets, I believe maybe some British, but primarily U.S. ones, started releasing a lot of information about what allegedly took place. So they identified um, that it was a suicide bombing carried out by a 22-year-old man named Salman Abedi. And so this came out pretty quickly. That was the U.S. that released the guy's name, uh, U.S. media. And very soon those in those hours and, you know, day or two after, there were two kind of focuses in the media. One was on um, Abedi himself, his identity, his background, and the other was the kind the kind of scandal that was going on because the UK were apparently none too pleased about the US media and intelligence with whom US uh, you know authorities security officials intelligence were in contact with sharing information because a lot of this information apparently got leaked in the US media against the wishes of the you know the UK counterparts in this relationship so this um, this prompted a whole bunch of angry statements from British officials. And I'm just going to welcome Joe to the show. He's Hi there. Now. Hello. That's all Sorry, I'm late. Hey, Joe. <laughs> we were just giving a brief description of the Manchester, um, Manchester media coverage. So uh-huh. the, um, what we're on about right now is the the kind of rift between U.S. and U.K. intelligence and uh, officials because the U.K. was very, very mad at the U.S. for sharing all these details, including photographs and um, just information about the attack. They shared, mm-hmm. well, like I said, first of all, they shared the, the suspect's name when apparently they weren't supposed to. And then the New York Times got a hold of a whole bunch of pictures from the crime scene that they apparently weren't supposed to share. And so the UK was just, well, reportedly furious about this and uh, had a lot of things to say in the media and um, 
apparently, you know, one-on-one with other officials. And so it came to the point where Tillerson basically said, you know, he takes complete responsibility and it won't happen again and we're going to do something about it. And Trump says that they're going to they're going to do an investigation to find out, you know, who is at the root of this and uh, prosecute them to the full extent of the law, if possible. And so it was kind right. of kind of humorous and kind of, um, I think, just um, symptomatic of just the, the state of the U.S., um, you know, media and intelligence now, as, you know, one one commentator put it on uh, that we, in an article that we had on Saw It, there's a kind of a culture of leaks now because the whole Trump thing with all of the leaks coming out about Trump, it just seems to be not, um, you know, um, it's become seemingly just a natural um, practice where a whole bunch of stuff, well, more stuff is leaked than at any other time, you know, I'd say in the past 20 years where it just seems to be a mm. daily, almost a weekly to daily um, phenomenon. And in this case, um, well, first of all, there was the, just a week or two ago, there was the whole Israeli intelligence, um, you know, alleged leak by Trump to Lavrov, which turned out to be a an insider leak to the Washington Post where all mm. the information was actually released. And, uh, and then this week, it's uh, UK information being shared and... Um. So, well, that's that. Did you have anything to yeah. comment on that, Joe? No, it's just it's it's hilarious to be honest. The to think that because these leaks um about the Manchester bombing were were very strange. And I mean, you might you might ask the question, why were the were the English or the British so um so worried, so so annoyed? That uh, this guy's name was released because, well, turns out uh, that was his name. That's that's who he was. So w- what's the big problem? Was it just uh, a face-saving thing? Like as in, as in, we wanted to tell the public, mm-hmm. you shouldn't tell them. Um, why? Why? If you you know, if if the Brit- British and the Americans collaborate on this kind of thing, why is there such a problem? That I mean, they're all part of the Great West anyway, right? So. Uh, uh, why is there a problem that it comes out of the U.S.? But they, yeah, as you said, they were extremely, the British were extremely annoyed. And um, that that kind of is a story in itself as to why why they would be annoyed. Um, but it's interesting, as I was saying, it's kind of hilarious that to think that this leak is actually part of um, the, as you mentioned, the ongoing leak, leakage that has been happening uh, since Trump became president and is directed at Trump as an attack on Trump, that seems to be one way that the uh, the so-called deep state or whatever is is trying to undermine the Trump has been trying to undermine the Trump presidency is by leaking information, confidential information, to make them <clears throat> to either make them look bad or to to cause problems um, and to maybe send a warning, as in we can release information. You know, so it's this idea of the deep state, a parallel kind of government to the Trump administration. That has, you know, its arms or tentacles into the intel agencies, and obviously has a lot of friends in the media and corporations and stuff, and that they can work at odds with the Trump administration, and then they can leak information uh, about what's going on inside the Trump administration, what they're doing, and and also stuff um, uh, that just makes them look bad, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that puts them at odds with their with their Western partners type thing, and, and it, it's kind of hilarious to think that this. Uh, is actually part of that um, 
in the sense that they leaked this information as part of an ongoing kind of leakage attack against Trump. Just where well, leak some information there. Let's make him look bad. Let's let's uh, let's piss off the Brits or uh, let's make it look like Trump has no uh, control over. Uh, you know the intel agencies or whoever gets this information, or let's make it look like it came out came from within the Trump administration. And uh, obviously, it's not the done thing. You're not meant to release that information. You're meant to allow the British to to handle it as they want. So it it kind of pissed them off. But the question is why? As I said, why it pissed them off? And um, obviously, one explanation why they would be annoyed at this is that well, it doesn't look very good if you know. Within, and I think it was pretty much, uh, there's some allegations that it was within a few hours mm-hmm. of the attack itself. When the British were saying nothing, where the media was still reporting just a bomb went off and who knows, you know, what what, what the cause was or even, you know, or, or who was responsible. Uh, the Americans released this guy's name. So, yeah, here's his name. Here's who he is. Here's where he's from. Here's where he lived. Here's his history. Here's his background. All that kind of stuff. Uh it's a bit suspicious that uh, somebody, or certainly if the British were to do that, it would look a bit suspicious. You know, I mean, well, if you know immediately who this guy is, if you can do that kind of investigation so quickly, surely, you know, you had close, you had a close eye on him, and and, and you could have anticipated this. So it brings up all sorts of problems for them, mm-hmm. in that sense of questions it raises as to um, why this actually happened. You know, and how do you know this guy so well? How can you be so sure? A few hours afterwards, know exactly who he was. Apparently, the, the Americans did. So, um, and they released this information, and it, and it gets into that whole area of state uh, participation in, in one way or another with uh, with these terror attacks. You know that um, as we've seen in so many of previous attacks uh, in Europe and in the US, uh, every single time, even though they wait a little longer to identify the person, they always generally say yes, he was known to intelligence agencies this person the attacker the bomber the jihadi whoever he was known um so yeah i mean the 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 issue with this guy is that he uh he was really well known to to british intelligence and to the americans and of course probably people listening kind of have heard a bit about or read a bit about uh, where he came from but it more or less centers on on libya back in 2011 although he was quite young at that age um, but he's, his father was part of the the gangs that were used to help to overthrow Gaddafi, to attack uh, Libya and overthrow Gaddafi and stuff. So, um, yeah, well, we can talk about that a bit more if you want. Like, But uh, it's just it's just funny to think that um, in, in attacking Trump, the deep state in the U.S. would actually have, to some extent, of course, not a smoking gun, but they would have let the cat, cat out of the bag a little bit about... about um, Intel agencies' close association with jihadi suicide bombers. Mm-hmm. Well, I think at this point, um, I think that's the the most solid angle on on this whole um, you know attack that that sh- that should be focused on. Of course, there should be more research and uh, um, you know more analysis to come. But the the big thing that that I see out of all of this is that. Even if, even if we accept to a large degree, like the the so-called official story, then even that in, in itself is damning because, like you mentioned, this guy's uh, uh, Betty, <clears throat> his father was a member of the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, 
which was essentially the the major, you know, Al-Qaeda in Libya that the U.S. and all their allies supported to overthrow Gaddafi. So, interestingly enough, like on the day, I think it was the day of the attack or the day after, um, this guy's father did an interview with, I think it was Reuters or AP, one of the wire services, and said, oh, there's no, you know, my, my son's innocent. We We don't believe in killing or anything like this. And then, well, a few hours later, he was arrested by Libyan authorities, and then it came out that he was a member of the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, LIFG, right. which, of course, were like bloodthirsty maniacs that went around killing everyone they could find. Um, so it just exposed some of the, the hypocrisy there. And then you look at the, the wider um, the wider context that in, in those couple of days afterwards, there was there were a few really good articles about the the whole situation involving these libyan so-called rebels so um abedi the father he had um allegedly fled libya you know for fear of his life from gaddafi because gaddafi was persecuting him well it was because abedi and a whole bunch of people like him were members of the um it's well how to put it like the for years gaddafi was um pretty much keeping um, a handle on the country and, um, you know, preventing the the, so, the the radicals, the kind of who would become um, the Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda proxies in Libya from gaining any kind of support or um, power in the country. And so these were the guys he was allegedly persecuting. It was really that, you know, this tiny percentage of Libyans who were anti-Gaddafi and, uh, you know, pro-Jihadi. And so Abedi was one of these guys. He fled in, I believe, 1996 or might have been earlier, but he was he was involved with all these groups and he went to the UK. And in, I believe, the early 2000s, he was um, put on a kind of like a some variant of the terrorist watch list. And he and a bunch of people like living in Manchester, the same neighborhood, same area, were... Um, like I said, put on these kinds of lists and, you know, they weren't allowed to travel and things like this. Some of them went to prison for various reasons. And then right before 2011, um, these guys get out of prison. They basically get their their records wiped clean. And the uh, MI5 basically tells them, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll totally support you if you go to Libya to overthrow Gaddafi. And so all of these Libyan exiles get sent from the UK to Libya to join these terrorist groups to overthrow Gaddafi. And then they come back and they have basically free passage back and forth between the, the UK and the, and Libya um, via other countries as well. Like I think some of them got in through Morocco, um, mm. but the, but it, it just shows that the level of collusion that these people were members of a known and acknowledged terrorist group and yet were given, um, essentially told they could do whatever they want in Libya, of course. And mm. now there's this, there's like a whole community of Libyan, um, you know, exiles who are members of terrorist organizations or have been, or who have been, and who are um, kind of just living freely in the UK because the UK would support them because they were anti-Gaddafi. Which of mm-hmm. course is just the same, the same um, kind of template that you see repeated over and over with 
the like the from going back to the Mujahideen and the you know in the all of the 80s and Al Qaeda in the 90s and everything else, where you have Western governments totally willing to support terrorist organizations and even doing mm-hmm. so pretty openly to a degree. I mean, it's 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 totally acknowledged that this is what the the UK did in regards to Libya, but it's almost like it's it's this weird kind of um, this weird situation where it's fully acknowledged on the one hand, but then kind of totally played down on the other, where most people aren't aware of it, even though it's part of the public record. So it's it's kind of confusing how that how that is, where it can be totally acknowledged, but I guess it's just because the media none of the media actually cover it with any degree of you know accuracy. Mm. But even then, you can read it in the Daily Mail, like it's it's it's, it's out there. So. Uh, well, that's the situation that 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 uh, you know is surrounding this whole Abedi guy, and um, just a bit about him personally. Apparently, like you mentioned, he was something like 16 years old in 20 um, in 2011. Mm-hmm. But so the initial reports were kind of sketchy on if he was if he'd actually gone to to Libya in 2011. Apparently, he did. Um, and you know, this is despite claims from you know leaders of LIFG saying that they wouldn't have employed anyone you know under the age of 18 but uh that's probably mm. it's probably not true but this yeah. so this kid this kid apparently went there and engaged in fighting in 2011 came back to the uk and has made several trips to libya since then and he was actually in libya um just days before the attack happened so i think he got i don't know how many days it was like a week maybe five days before mm. the attack happened he'd he'd been in libya and came back to the uk and in the past five years um, according to like a, a lot of the you know big British newspapers, speaking to um, you know family friends and you know distant relatives and just acquaintances of the family, they say that a lot of his um, even friends had warned the uh, British authorities called the the terror hotline about this guy, warning them about him at least five times in the past five years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of his neighbors said for. Uh, well, she didn't give the time period, but she said in the uh, the the flat where he was living, he and his brother, um, because um, probably I think sometime in the last year his parents had moved back to Libya, so he was living there alone with his older brother, and they had they basically had an Al Qaeda flag uh, hanging in their um, mm-hmm. you know in the, in the window of their of their flat, and she said you know, th- this woman said only oh, well she seemed like a you know a decent person she wasn't really. Um, you know, extreme one way or the other, but she's, she just said, Oh, that's wrong. You know, they should have done something about that, that, you know, these guys were hanging this flag in their window, but of mm. course, you know, no one did anything. So the, and so the, the, the UK MI5, all the intelligence agencies and security services, they knew about this guy. They knew about this whole situation because they knew that all of these people, um, all these Libyans living in Manchester were, you know, used by the UK government in Libya. Mm-hmm. And but of course, just didn't do anything. And there are a number of reasons of that. One is because essentially they're UK allies. Mm. I mean, they did the dirty work in Libya, so right. Why do anything exactly. about them? Well, right, just, the- just to confuse matters a little further, uh, you know, there's one story that um, a close friend of uh, of this guy uh, was killed um, last summer by yeah. uh, six uh, individuals uh, that ran him down with a car. And so according to uh, Betty's mother, 
who had an, an interview with the uh, Wall Street Journal. Um, he he had vowed vengeance uh, for the death of his friend. Yeah, he and viewed it as a hate crime. He viewed it as a hate crime, and uh, and he kind of coupled that with um, with the desire to avenge the the, the deaths of uh, Syrian uh, citizens. So he he kind of conflated that whether this story is uh, is actually correct or factual or not is I guess up to further research and debate. But um, there seem to be a lot of contradictions here. If if he was a proponent of Al Qaeda on the one hand, and uh, and was and was out of this vengeance killing, avenging the death of people in Syria who have been killed by Al Qaeda and other allied groups there. Um, this reminds me a little bit of uh, of the um, the guy who um, drove down and and killed uh, so many dozens in Nice, France, some time mm-hmm. back, as well as uh, the Munich shootings. Um, you know, there there are elements of a, an unstable individual who who just uh, kind of independently. Um, went off and, and did this thing, even though the explosion at the Ariana Grande concert indicates it may have been uh, it may have been something that he was incapable of uh, of creating um, mm. bomb and power wise. Um, so uh, I guess I, well, can, go ahead. I don't, yeah, I was going to say I don't really buy it. You know, in the sense that uh, there's a lot of angry young men out there. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most of them, most of them end up uh, acting out antisocially in one way or another, uh, acting out their anger um, in, in much more benign ways. You know, um, for a twenty-two-year-old kid, basically, to be able to go and assemble a bomb of that size is just uh, absolutely ridiculous. So, um, I think. Uh, he, he he definitely had someone helping him, someone who gave him the the bomb. If he if if indeed he was the one who detonated it, uh, it may have been detonated by remote, uh, you know, remote control. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much more. Um, you know, the thing about it is if if you think about this from the point of view of a strategy, you have to go come back and look at this. Supposedly, if you take the official narrative, this is ISIS or who I suppose ISIS claimed responsibility, but who's ISIS? That's like saying the boogeyman claimed responsibility. You know, at this point, it's ridiculous, especially with this guy's background of, of basically being uh, from Libya, involved in Libya, and involved in the overthrow of Gaddafi, which he would, in theory, be uh, quite happy about. Him and his father and his brothers and stuff are all anti-Gaddafi, um, and being very well known to to British intelligence um, over the past uh, five or six years. But uh, so supposedly. But let's take the narrative that ISIS somehow got a hold of this guy in Libya. Maybe, okay, let's say ISIS got a hold of him in Libya, despite what his father says. But his father's complicit because he was staying with his father over the past couple of weeks in Libya. His father's obviously complicit in that then if he was being groomed for this uh, attack in Manchester in Libya over the past few weeks, then he's flown back to Manchester and he carries out the bombing. Uh, So these people have uh, an agenda and it's to kill people in Europe white people, Western, Christian, nominally Christian, whatever, people in Europe. Um, but going with that narrative, he's uh, you've got this young guy, obviously very troubled, very angry, unstable, 
and you're just going to give him a bomb and let him, you know, decide, make sure he gets there, you know, and there's own steam, doesn't have second thoughts, goes in and, and, and follows it all through. And remember, he's 22 years old, you know, and uh, so he, he's going to have to be very accomplished, a very accomplished young man to actually carry this out or for people to have trust in him to actually carry it out. So the idea that of, the, of the suicide bomber in this case is uh, doesn't really stack up. Uh, I think it's more than likely, and it was mentioned in the media, you know, you know, official government sources, whatever, investigators aren't sure whether it was a, uh, a detonator himself, that he, he detonated himself or, or could have been made mention of the idea that it was remote controlled. So that kind of thing is very likely to be remote controlled, you know. Um, but then <laughs> even that, you know, you have to have a very disturbed individual to just walk with a bomb into a concert arena and just wait for someone who's obviously standing by close enough to see where he is to detonate the bomb at the right time in the right place. Um, so it's, it's all very kind of, it's all very disturbing anyway, uh, or, or it doesn't make a lot of sense, uh, to me. Um, and the problem, mm -hmm. yeah, well, you know, getting into the, the issue of, of British intelligence, um, or Western intelligence agencies involvement with these people is, you know, they don't talk about it as harsh as I'm saying in the media, they don't tell people about it, but you know, you'll hear it in, in a few different reports or, or, you know, publications here and there that, and it's been going on for many years where, you know, they'll try and contact some person to be a, an informant, you know, for them. So this is going with the official narrative that the British intelligence are worried about uh, an attack, for example, by Islamic extremists or whatever. So, but they don't know don't have enough information and they don't have enough data or, or evidence to arrest them all and just get it over with and solve the problem. So they have to have informants to find out what's going on, if there's any attacks planned. So they go and talk, go and talk, approach some young guy who's ideally young, but it can be anybody who they can, you know, make an offer to or manipulate in some way. You be our man on the inside. Um, so that the person then um, is either a part already a part of an organization like that, but usually they're, you know, usually they're if they're in a part of an organization like that, they usually have to have something on that person where they can threaten them. You know, so say uh, a body was this this guy was a member of some extremist cell committed to blowing up or killing people in England. If some informant for British intelligence comes along to him and says, "Listen." You need to work for us. He needs to have something on him to force him to do that. Like, you work with us or you're going to jail for 25 years. Uh, something along those lines. Uh, that's one scenario where you, you identify an active member of a, of a group like that and you manipulate them, you force them to work with you to play a, a double agent role. Uh, the other one is where you don't have, the person that you're targeting isn't necessarily a member, but you you get them to you have a, an informant or whatever that that brings them into the organization and then you keep tabs on it on on what's going on inside by you know your informant is acting as another member of the organization or whatever it's all get all gets very complicated but the point being that when british when these spy agencies involve themselves in this way of, of using informants and having contacts no when they say this guy body was known to us you know that usually means that 
British intelligence had been talking to him uh, directly or indirectly for quite a long time and had been following him and had direct contact with him. So the problem then is how far do you, you know, if you're, you want to get a, you want to, to find out about the kind of attack that he carried out in Manchester. Um, but the, when you find out that an attack like that is being planned from your sources or from this guy himself, you know, he comes back to you and he says, listen, or he comes back to an MI5 informant and says, listen, they're going to, they want me to be a suicide bomber at the Ariana Grande concert. Well, then that's when MI5 would kind of, well, they're faced with a dilemma. Do we, do we swoop in and get this guy and take him away so he can't be the bomber? Or will they just make someone else do it? We need more information. Or do we, can we now swoop in and get all the people who are organizing this and stop this from happening, you know? Uh, so it's a very kind of murky game. And there's even, <laughs> there's even there has been uh, situations in the past where, and this, these are official situa- uh, situations, uh, or official records of situations in the past where, uh, uh, Western intelligence agency was grooming or was using a guy inside a, a terrorist organization, but they had to let the guy actually carry out a terror attack in order for him to prove his credentials as a terrorist. Right? This is this is part of the official way that these things are done. So there's one possible situation here where. Uh, this young guy was effectively uh, working for or being forced to work for as an informant for MI5 about uh, trying to get access or information from terror cells, but that in order to prove his credentials and get further into the organization so they could really get information on a bigger terror attack was ha- that was going to happen or identify the bigger fish in the organization so then they could you know, no, you know, get those people, they have to let this guy prove himself. But in this case, it means he proves himself to death, right? So that doesn't work because um, he, he blew himself up, right? There's no point. He's not a very good informant anymore because he's dead. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that, that's the way they, they talk about these things and that's supposedly the way they follow. That's the process that these people follow. I mean... Another analogy for this is is the many many FBI terror plots that have happened over the past ten years or ten or so years over the, uh, in the US, mm-hmm. where the FBI goes down, identifies some young susceptible guy. Uh, they're they're hearing that uh, he might be saying he wants to join Al Qaeda or he doesn't like America. So what they do is they have the FBI gets uses an informant that's usually a criminal of some description uh, that is working for the FBI to go down to act like he's a member of Al Qaeda contact the young guy and say, hey, do you want to be part of Al-Qaeda? And the young guy says, yeah, sure. Uh, Or maybe the guy says, no, not really. And then he says, well, I'll give you $50 if you want to be Al-Qaeda. And the guy says, okay, I'll be Al-Qaeda for 50 bucks. Give me 50 bucks. Okay, now you're Al-Qaeda. I'll swear you went Al-Qaeda. And now after a period of grooming, he'll say to him, you know, maybe, well, now that you remember Al-Qaeda, don't you want to do some uh, Al-Qaeda stuff, like uh, blow up America or something? And the guy will say, well, maybe. Well, what if I give you like uh, a bomb? Would you want to go and like blow up the Sears Tower? The guy be like, I don't know how much money have you got? And the guy said, well, I got five hundred dollars. And I have you decide. Okay, five hundred dollars. I might for five hundred dollars, I might want to blow up the Sears Tower. Blah blah blah. The whole process goes along, and what happens is this person is groomed and turned into an unlikely or implausible terrorist 
to the point where he's given a fake bomb by an FBI informant and told to go down to the Sears Tower one morning and then push the button on the on the little control he has and or and so as he appears at the Sears Tower that morning with a fake bomb given to him by the, by the FBI, the FBI swoop in, grab him and say, gotcha, we got another terrorist that they made mm-hmm. from scratch, more or less. The only thing they had to go on at the beginning was the guy was maybe talking, saying stupid stuff about he might have been hanging Al-Qaeda flags on his wall or something like that or, or posting Al-Qaeda pictures on the internet. <clears throat> That's how they stop terror attacks in, in, in America and in the West, supposedly. So, but you can see that it's basically it's a it's a reality creation. They're creating the thing that they say exists, you know, or they mm-hmm. they justify it to themselves by saying, "Well, we got to stop this at the very beginning," in the sense that we got, but we got to lead it through. We can't just go and say someone say to someone, "Listen, you posted uh, something supportive of uh, ISIS on Facebook, therefore you're going to jail for 25 years." We got to get him to the point where he actually plays the part of a real te- of a supposedly real terrorist with our help, up to the point of but not beyond the point of, of, of carrying out attack an attack and then they've got their terrorists. So the whole thing is just bizarre and ridiculous. It's almost like you're, it's like drumming up business in a certain sense, you know, like uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the meat and potatoes for intel agencies in Western countries is fighting Islamic terrorism. If there is no, no Islamic terrorism, uh, that just, that doesn't mean that if we don't see Islamic terrorism, we don't see evidence of terrorists planning at, attacks, that doesn't mean they aren't. It just means that they're doing it, doing it in secret. So we got to find the ones that might be planning to do it in secret in the future and take them through the process of doing it all in a controlled way to the point of giving them a fake bomb and then we arrest them and then we say that that's a, we foiled a terror plot. So this is all just to give you an example of the extent and the long history and the extent uh, to which Western intel agencies are fully, fully in bed with all of these radical groups and, from, and very often uh, control them fully they're fully they're watching them they know who they are and they control them fully now when you realize that that is the case and it is the case because there's loads of evidence loads of documents to show that that is the actual case uh in the uk for example uh you've got a problem then with attacks like manchester because there's very good probability as i think it was in an alternate uh, uh article recently max journalist uh, max blumenthal uh, asked the question about when, when he heard about the extent to which uh, British intelligence knew about this guy Abadi that um, Abedi that he uh, he asked the question uh, what did the British government know about him and when did it know uh, was British intelligence attempting to groom Abedi as an informant well yes absolutely he not only were they attempting to they already had uh, groomed him as an informant. He was their plaything, basically. And there's many others like this young guy in the UK who are the plaything, in that sense, of uh, of intelligence agencies. And they are, if they so choose there, they're able to do whatever they want with them. And that just leads us to the next question of, is there any benefit to the British government or to British intelligence agencies or the British deep state or whatever you want to call it, is there any benefit to them from having a bombing at the Ariana Grande concert in, in Manchester? Because well, the, if there was, hmm. then they have the means to have a groomed, young, disturbed, unstable Libyan, you know, guy, young Muslim from Libya. They have the means to make put him in that concert with a bomb because that's their that's their bread and butter. 
Well, Joe, as, uh, as you pointed out in your recent focus, um, the timing of this act is uh, extremely peculiar in that it's just a couple of weeks before the snap elections in the UK. Um, you know, you what inevitably happens with these kinds of acts is that people kind of uh, shut down. Their amygdala hijack occurs. Their mm-hmm. thinking ability gets uh, gets cut off, and they kind of default to um, whatever fear response, uh, appeal to authority, safety, security, any promises that uh, that they're going to be kept safe from such actions happening again uh, would would be enacted by uh, by their government. Their their big daddy and um theresa may didn't waste any time she you know in her capacity uh, as a head of her party she came out and made a a, you know her little predictable speech about security and uh further as you pointed out in your focus uh there was a simultaneous kind of assault uh media assault on jeremy corbyn as as Mm. his kind of uh um, terrorist sympathizer just because mm-hmm. he's, he's not this rabid, you know, uh, kind well, it's of... Kinda, it's kind of hilarious. They, they, yeah, they accuse him of being weak on terrorism, but it's been under the Tories that the two two of the biggest terror attacks have on under the Conservatives that have uh, that two of the biggest terror attacks have happened this year within a few months of each other in, in London on Westminster Bridge uh, a couple of months ago and, and now this one. So... Um, how those people, how that conservative government can turn around and say, well, if you elect the other government, more more things like this are going to happen. It's like, yeah, but they're already happening under you. So, And people really didn't like the fact that, that, the, that the conservatives and Theresa May, the British Prime Minister, came out and tried to, you know, use this. I mean, it was so, such a, it was a really bad idea in their part, but they're, they're obviously desperate. And to me, that kind of speaks... It speaks to the the essence of this attack in itself, when where they immediately came out and in very inadvisedly tried to use it to increase uh, their their kind of their chances, I suppose, or, or attempt to garner more votes for the upcoming election on, on the eighth of June. Um, but by saying, you know, well, whatever they say, they just kind of she got on TV and and give the whole kind of this is why you need us and this is terrible and this wouldn't happen. This will be, it'll be worse. More of this will happen under labor and this is why you need a strong government like us. But it was all very disjointed and not very clear. And, and I mean, the thing that came through for most people was the fact that she was, uh, she was using it in a, in a very cynical way, using the terror attack, the, the fact that 22 people have been killed to try and get uh, increase her chances of being, of, of continuing as prime minister and after the next general election for the Conservatives to win. Uh, so it was a really bad idea, and anybody with any sense would have realized that, uh, that this was, even if she doesn't think that this was some kind of a manipulated attack, mm-hmm. she she and her, her people, her policymakers, or her propaganda experts, whatever, should, should have thought or should have realized that, you know, so close before an election, um, this is going to work in our favor, uh, and if we then exploit it, uh, we're going to look bad, and we may even cause people to be suspicious about about the nature of it as well. You know, um, uh, about about why it happened. You know, and 
I mean, and that's happened, actually. People have done that, and almost mainstream to a certain extent. I mean, there's this news website, the Daily Mail, in the UK, and it's very much traditionally a conservative kind of a tabloid, you know, and I've been watching, uh, looking at the comments underneath articles on that about this Manchester attack, and just the, the vast majority of them are very critical of the conservatives, and that's usually, that's a conservative paper. Supposedly the people who read that are pro-conservatives, but... Uh, they're ver- they're really not happy with that with the, that government and that woman Theresa May because of what what they've done the response to to this Manchester bombing and um, so so the fact that they just went ahead and kind of shot themselves in the foot in that sense mm-hmm. uh, over, by their the, the type of response they had to it suggests that um, well they're idiots for a start and they're so out of touch with the ordinary people. Uh, of the UK, which is true, I think, increasingly in the way in Western countries uh, across the board, you know, and we saw that with Trump, I suppose, was the reason Trump got elected. The people are, the establishment is so out of touch with the people. Uh, they're just two different realities. And and that there's a, that's causing problems, you know, people are just not playing the game anymore, you know, and starting to, starting to ask serious questions. I mean, one of the main uh, kind of conspiracy theories, that mainstream conspiracy theories that I've seen um, on mainstream websites in the UK after this Manchester bombing is that people are saying, bringing up the Saudi Arabia uh, link, uh, you know, her going and kowtowing or or cozying up to the Saudis and people, a lot of people are aware that the Saudis are a bunch of head chopper, jihadi, extremist, Muslim, terrorist, supporting uh, nut jobs, you know, and um, and then they see their, their government, their prime minister going and kissing up to them and knowing that the Saudis fund extremist Muslims who carry out terror attacks, and then you have a terror attack uh, in in the UK, and it's people are saying, well, some people have gone as far as to say, well, you know, the Saudis probably have a stake in in the in this UK general election. The Saudis very definitely would like to see the Conservatives win because Labour under Jeremy Corbyn have said not nice things about Saudi Arabia and they've said that they would stop selling weapons to them and they said all sorts of other un- unpleasant things for the Saudis so uh, in terms of you know what uh, who, what other countries like Saudi Arabia would like to see happen on June 8th in the general election they want to see the conservatives win so could the Saudis have facilitated this guy to go and blow up an Ariana Grande concert in order to try and influence the election like in the same way that the Clinton Clintonites uh, in America have said that Russia tried to influence, um, you know, because that's mm-hmm. that's uh, as part of public discourse now, right? That other countries can do things, whether it's true or not. Other countries can tr- do things to to swing an election in, in in Western countries, like Russia could. Russia apparently swung the election in America for Donald Trump by. By publishing stuff about uh, Hillary Clinton, supposedly, right? And that gave it to Trump. Well, the Saudis are a bit crazier and they like chopping people's heads off, so maybe they wouldn't stop at uh, helping this guy to, or facilitating this guy to, to carry out a bombing in order to try and swing the election for the Conservatives against mm-hmm. Jeremy Corbyn. And people are talking about that. You know, these people are nuts. People are doing this kind of thing. And the, these, these elites in the UK and the Western countries are completely nuts. They have lost the plot. They're so out of touch w- with people that I don't know what they're going to do because they can't do anything. They have to keep going. When they, I think they get an idea that 
people aren't reacting the right way anymore. People are starting to kind of really ask questions about us and be very suspicious. And in response to that, they ramp up the policies and the deception and the corruption and the lies and the, you know, the really blatant stuff, blatant manipulation. They ramp that up in an attempt to kind of fool the people to keep them down, you know, to push them back down to, to, to confuse them again and put them back in their place, not realizing that it's those policies and those things that have led people to question in the first place. So by continuing to do it, you're just going to make them even more suspicious, the people. Mm -hmm. But it, apparently it, they don't know what else to do. Well, yeah, I think they very, very easily could have just uh, repeated their, uh, their, their works of fixing the election in, uh, in Scotland with the Scottish referendum. They could have uh, exchanged notes with their pals in, in France with, uh, in all likelihood, the recently fixed uh, election for uh, Macron. I mean, they could have done this in a, in a, much, uh, in a much more covert uh, way. They, they didn't have to kill a bunch of people. Well, um, no, but Alain, it, I don't think that's, that's – there's a problem with fixing elections, you know. Um, you can't – you can rig elections – and then just assume that people will accept it. Mm -hmm. um, but what these people want, that's not good enough. They want people to really, uh, to really vote for them, right? It's like the corrupt elite, warmongery type leaders really want the people to, to genuinely support them. Sure, anybody can rig a vote and, you know, even though people wanted to kick us out, we're going to stay in power because we rigged the vote. That's not very satisfactory because you know that there's this majority and sometimes a big majority of people in the country who freaking hate you. And, you know, there's something, it's, it's a very tenuous situation where you would say have like, you know, let's say of the voting population, 70% of the voting population in, in, in England or in the, UK, in the UK want the Tories to be kicked to the curb. They want them out. Um, but then, on those seven, on that seventy percent of the population, you force the kind of so so called reality of y'all just voted for us. You want you actually want us back in. Uh, you know, it's 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 a very difficult situation because people know that they don't. You know, I mean, you can't push that too far. You can't keep rigging elections in that way. You know. So you're uh, you saying that there's change, a... You have to change your policies, you know. The only way you can get people to like you is to change your policies, but these people do not and will not change their policies. So you're where are they going to go? A level of control uh, over over the, the thinking, uh, not only as kind of um, demonstrated by the vote, but that there's a deeper level of, uh, of control and even... Right. Um, they want to own you, body uh, and soul, mind and soul. Um, when you... When you when you give your kind of free will yeah. uh, over to someone else, it, right? Uh, I, 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 I see your point. It's like they want, they want you, they want the people to like their, their oppression, you know, to mm. say thank you for it. Um, but they can't change. Like I said, they can't change their policies. That's the last thing they'll ever do. So they, they just keep, uh, they keep charging ahead. It's like, I keep, these these past few years, I've, I've had many times uh, where I've had the had recourse to use the a, a kind of quote that I remember from when I studied Macbeth in school, you know, or 
you know, Macbeth basically goes around killing a bunch of people to try and get to be uh, to be king of Scotland, you know. And he ends up killing the, the king and everything. But halfway through his kind of killing spree of knocking off all these people who stood in his way to become king, he has a moment of questioning where he thinks to himself, you know, whether or not he should should keep doing, keep going, you know, is this really worth it, you know? And there, he basically says, I am in blood so far steeped in that to go back would be as tedious as to go on. Uh, so he basically says, you know, well, I've come this far. And even though I have to wade through blood, lots more blood to get where I want to go, I've already got a bunch of bodies behind me. So there's no point in stopping now and going back and trying to atone for all the stuff I've already done. And that's the, I think that's the, uh, in a general sense, that's the attitude of these people in, in power in, in Europe um, is that uh, not a, maybe they don't even think that deeply about it or that there isn't that much clarity about it, but they're certainly just, uh, they seem to be unable to to change. You know, they're, they're committed on the path of manipulating the population and forcing the population to accept what the population increasingly does not want. And they're going to take it to wherever it needs to go to get there. But obviously where it needs to go to get there is kind of totalitarian lockdown, you know, a kind of police state. I mean, that, that is the road to a police state. You can't forever oppress people who don't, you know, don't want you and don't want, don't like your oppression. You can't, the only way you can do that is ultimately, I don't know, you have to throw everybody in jail or institute some kind of a totalitarian regime. And, and mm. you know, these people are not taking stock of the fact that they're on the wrong path. People don't like what they're doing. Uh, you know, don't like the levels of the ridiculous levels of corruption and immorality that, that defines Western uh, political life. Uh, and there's lots of little evidence, like one, one, one major problem for a lot of people is Saudi Arabia. And it's, People are people are tired, you know, of, of Saudi Arabia. You know, it, it comes up more and more, and they try to massage the whole Saudi thing. You know, you notice how Saudi try to put it's ridiculous. They try to put Saudi Arabia in as what was it on, on in the UN mm-hmm. uh, Human Rights the, Council? The Human Rights Council. I mean, mm-hmm. is that not insane? Given what everybody knows in the you know, and, and the UN is like okay, it's an international organization, but in the West, you know, it's the UN is. Uh, is understood as this, as, you know, global organization that works for works for the betterment of humanity, and and everybody knows what Saudi Arabia is, and you put them in as a hum, on the Human Rights Council. I mean, that's oh, how stupid do they think people are? And the thing is, they think that pe- people who don't respond to that, like don't get up in arms and and have a, a massive demonstration or go and wreck the Saudi embassy or something as a result, they think that that means tacit acceptance of that ridiculous uh, situation. You put a bunch of head choppers on the Human Rights Council, uh, or you go and sell them a bunch of weapons, and then say, "Ah, but it's it's for security." Or you give them loads of money, or whatever, and they you know that they're funding extremists and, and building mosques to, to spread extremist Islam all around Europe. Uh, they think that because people don't react, you know, uh, or, or uh, you know don't actually get on the streets or do something uh, very very specific uh, in response to that they think that's has to support people they think, think they think that people just go you know okay uh, we can we can we can pass anything off on these people it doesn't matter we're just, we're just going to carry on but they don't realize that the more they do that there, there is something building you know people people have a lot the average person or the population in general has a lot of tolerance uh, and they will just kind of turn a blind eye over and over again but eventually I think they have a breaking point, and I'm not saying that it's going to lead to, you know, 
a whole new world that's all all better or anything like that. But I think these people are pushing the population and forcing them uh, to accept things that they really don't want to accept. And um, and eventually, there's going to be some kind of a kickback. You know, they're, I think they're going to eventually let the cat out of the bag in the sense of what they've been, how they've been operating. You know, and the, the true level of their corruption. As bad as it seems now, uh, once it's exposed, it'll just, you know, everybody's jaws will be on the ground, you know? Yeah. Well, the <clears throat> it's a weird situation to think about. It's it's almost like it, what came to mind, you know, listening to, to you talk about this, Joe, is, is kind of the, we've had this discussion in the past about UFO disclosure and how, mm. like, well, one of the things that Richard Dolan had said about it is that it's an inevitability, but it'll never happen. But right. so it's going to happen, but it's not going to happen. And there's this kind of paradox and contradiction inherent in that. And it's the same thing when we look at the state of politics in Western countries, where, like you said, the only direction that it seems it can possibly go, just due to the nature of the people in charge and the nature of um, their populations, the only direction it can go is totalitarianism. Like they'd have to mm. act, absolutely cramp, clamp down on things in order to stay in power. And yet at mm-hmm. the same time, it's 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 as if that well that hasn't happened and it seems like it's a far way off like it won't happen so mm. it's almost as if it, it an inevitability but will it ever happen i don't know will it will things just the only other option is that things continue on as they are and mm. what are the chances of that happening so the it, it's a weird situation to think about it's 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 almost like one of those situations for me that seems almost impossible to, to predict where it will go because it right. no no prediction seems to capture, you know, it seems to be a certain bet, basically. So mm-hmm. when you look at what's going on, just look at uh, Trump in the U.S., for example, and y- you can then translate this to any other Western nation. So let's say that let's say that Corbyn wins the election and becomes prime minister. Then what's he going to do and what's going to change? Because just like in the U.S., you've got a system that has basically mm-hmm. managed 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 to entrench itself. If you kind of picture it as a um, a kind of like pyramid, where you know of, of triangles, and at every top of each triangle, you've got you know positions of influence and power, and just due to the way things have been for the past, even just take the last twenty years, but it could go probably goes back even further. All these positions have now been filled, you know, by people who are part of just what we can call the establishment. They're the people that agree with everything like uh, that you've been saying about them that you know they're they've got their policies they want to do things a certain way and they're going to keep doing them and so you see this in the in the states um where trump comes to power puts a bunch of his people in in positions of power but what like how many if i don't know what the percentage would be i wouldn't even hazard a guess but it would be a small percentage compared to the number of people that are already in their positions and still in their positions so you're coming up against a machine basically that is well established well in place and isn't willing to give up its power so mm-hmm. then you get get this situation of conflict well then you you have this um <clears throat> well this internal division within the power structure of any given western country and where does that go well so you've got this kind of the new guy or the new girl that comes in and wants to change certain things and you know, disagrees with the way things have been going and tries to institute some kind of, you know, reforms and, and changing, uh, you know, firing people and putting in new and putting in new people in these positions. But on the other hand, you've got, they're up against 
like a system of very um, experienced operators who know the game and know know how to be in power and keep power and will do anything to keep it. So, mm-hmm. so where do you go from there? It's like it all. Right. It's it's like a um, a pipe dream for any new you know insider with you know dreams of changing things. It's it's a pipe dream for them to think they're they're going to be able to change things. But so how do things get better? Well, chances are they won't. Like probably like the only solution that I can see to that, or the only maybe not solution, but the only result of that would be like the the kind of totalitarianism or or you know mass revolution kind of thing and mm-hmm. even that doesn't even seem likely so it's just a yeah. total a totally weird situation where it's it's very hard to predict yeah it is it is very very strange and it's almost like it's this contrast between the narrative uh, that these politicians in the west have of you know to themselves most of them they they say uh, and they tell themselves that they're all about the West and they are about freedom and democracy and about uh, you know high standards of living and and but yeah freedom and democracy basically in that you know the whole standard system of you know the people elect the representatives who do their will blah blah you know they're of course that's a lovely wonderful beautiful image and, and political system and it's the best of uh, that you can get and all that kind of stuff and it's great to be a part of that um, but. Behind it, they're all a bunch of, there's the, you know, this idea of system one and system two. You have, you know, your conscious narrative of what you tell yourself, the reasons, or the reasons you give yourself for why you actually do things. But the re- real reason you do things are, are totally different. And usually the reason you, just, you do things are much more base, uh, kind of, of of a base nature. Um, like just uh, self-aggrandizement or money or power or, or any of those things, you know. And uh, that's that's your drives. And I think there's a lot of people in positions of power who have those uh, those very basic drives uh, are in the ascendant, and they're kind of predatorial. They're out for themselves, and they're out for all the goodies for themselves, basically. Which is obviously very much in contrast to uh, the idea of uh, Western, you know, uh, a developed Western democracy, you know, um, and justice and uh, <laughs> freedom, uh, all of those noble ideals. So. You have this kind of contrast between these two things where in order to keep kind of feeding off Western populations, these people have to continue to tell them and at least maintain some structures of actual freedom and actual democracy. Mm-hmm. But all the while they are inexorably, their, their, their base desires are inexorably leading them to exactly the opposite of that, you know, where they feed more and more and more and eventually get into a, a kind of totalitarian situation because once you cross a certain point of, of abuse of a population, uh, you will have to uh, physically force it on them in some way because the people, despite their uh, tolerance, will eventually reach a breaking point and then you'll have to force it on them. You know, um, And even then, when they're doing that, they'll have to justify it to themselves and to the people that they're doing it in the interest of freedom and democracy because that's their narrative, right? So it's, it's this schizoidal kind of situation where you know, we have these two, clearly two-track things going on. It's been the big problem in the West for years, people trying to figure out what's really going on and what, what the nature of Western intentions are and trying to get to the bottom of it. You know, because on the one hand, it's freedom and democracy, spread freedom around the world, we love everybody, you know, we want to make the world a wonderful place. But at the same time, the evidence or the results of what you're doing don't really seem to be having that effect. Now, is that an accident or 
some part of you actually planning those negative effects, you know, uh, not just around the world, but at home as well. Are you, you know, you say you want the best, you say you love America and the American people and you want us to be the best, greatest country in the world, but you're actually feeding off the body politic more and more and more and, and, and uh, decreasing, you know, people's standard of living and causing social uh, problems in, in the country. So, you know, there's a disconnect between what you say and what you do, you know, and that seems to be the truck that we're on. You know, that's the that's the steam. And so, what I don't know what when does it break? When does the actual when do those two things become so so uh, separated? You know, between what they say and what they do, that it's no longer tenable to keep up a pre- the pretense anymore. I think at that point, yeah, they. they They'll still justify it, but, you know, I think they have to force uh, uh, their intentions on people eventually in, in, a, in a much more direct and physical way. And I think these kind of Manchester bombing uh, terrorist attacks are an example of that, although it's still covert. This is like a, almost like a third option or a solution to that problem I've been describing, uh, where the deep state can actually bludgeon the body, poli- the bo- the, the, the body pu- public um, without exposing themselves as being fundamentally anti-democratic and essentially totalitarian and wanting to enslave people in some way or other. Uh, that's what they really want. That's their predatorial natures. But they they want to be able to maintain the idea of exactly the opposite of that, that they're freedom-loving people. So you pull in a third actor and you, you get to manipulate and bludgeon people, bludgeon people's consciousnesses and, as Alan was saying, you know, emotions via amygdala hijacks through these uh, violent attacks, but you're still squeaky clean. And in fact, you can come in and say, I'm here to save everybody. Well, I'm just thinking about how this kind of uh, totalitarianism is already present to some degree. Um, In particular, uh, the recent revelations in the Seth Rich murder story, he was the uh, DNC staffer who uh, was killed several months ago in Washington, uh, shot four times to the back, um, none of his uh, possessions stolen. Um, and uh, it, it came out recently that um, Rod Wheeler, I think his name is, who was hired by the family, of, uh, of Seth Rich to investigate the murder because there was no information forthcoming about any kind of investigation. Uh, Rod Wheeler said that, in fact, it was um, Donna Brazil, uh, who is a uh, former, um, like one of the leaders of the, of the DNC, uh, who at one point came to uh, the Washington, D.C. Police Department after she found out that Wheeler was investigating and said, why is he snooping? Mm. Um, so this information comes out. Uh, website WND um, uh, puts out this story, uh, which is highly suspicious. You'd think that um, with no information about one of her employees' murders, uh, she would uh, she would be interested in knowing who, who was responsible if, if there was no answer to it, or at least that, in, that a good investigation was going forward. So basically, um, the entire corporate media in the U.S. has been absolutely uh, relentless in shutting down this uh, this story and and uh, labeling it a conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which is the death knell of any of any story in in the U.S. Just you know, label the writer or researcher a conspiracy theorist. So uh, basically, Sean Hannity at Fox News, um, who had uh, helped break this story, was forced to kind of um, well, he didn't retract it on his own radio show, uh, which is independent of Fox News. Um, but I think he had to come out with a statement, um, apologizing for it for Fox news, more or less, uh, Twitter has suppressed the, uh, the, the WND mention of, um, of Donna Brazil's, you know, why are you snooping story? Uh, and, um, you know, you have this, this dynamite, and we mentioned this recently on another show, an absolutely incendiary story here because, uh, what, what Seth Rich basically exposed with the distribution of, of emails um, uh, to WikiLeaks uh, was, was a level of corruption far and beyond even the, um, the kind of uh, the shunting of, of Bernie Sanders' campaign against Hillary Clinton, uh, but all kinds of malfeasance. Trey, Trey Gowdy recently made a statement uh, on one of these investigative committees that that this is what we're seeing right now uh, with all of this information is is far worse than we've even been told. Uh, and, and of course, you know, the, this threatens to tear down a lot of the 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 DNC and, and Hillary Clinton and and all of her uh, all of her cronies. Um, so w- what we have been seeing, interestingly enough, is Washington Post and New York Times taking a step back supposedly, and making statements in their editorials to say, oh, well, maybe we're being a little too uh, too anxious and aggressive about getting uh, Trump out of office right now. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, and the bottom line is they want to ease off of him because they know that he knows that this is a kind of a life or death uh, situation for him, so to say. Uh, he knows that they're after him and want blood. And you know, pressed with this kind of threat, uh, there is the possibility that he would use uh, the the death of Seth Rich and and the exposure to all of the, his emails and information, um, not only politically to his advantage, but to also show a that it was in fact a uh, a DNC insider who leaked the information, that it wasn't Russia who who hacked into the emails. Um, and of course, that would destroy the whole uh, Russia hacked our election um, and freedom and democracy in the U.S. And would um, would affirm uh, Trump's position as president. Mm. So th- this this story goes into all kinds of different directions. I, I think it affirms just how how powerful and connected the media is to the deep state in the U.S., who would prefer to continue going on as it is, uh, but will just allow just enough rope to protect itself in the form of backing off of Trump. So yeah, th- that's there's one no, of the biggest. There's, mm-hmm. there's nothing about um, there's no official uh, evidence that um, Seth Rich gave any emails to WikiLeaks, right? No, there's just a few allegations and people saying that they know that he did and confirming that but yeah. you know there hasn't been any kind of hard evidence presented well kim.com uh, offered to give a statement before no one less than robert mueller about this 
Mm. And um, he he basically affirmed that he knew uh, Seth Rich was the was the leaker. We also have Craig Murray, former uh, UK ambassador to Uzbekistan, saying that um, or implying that he had met Seth Rich at some point. Well, but he hasn't ever mentioned the name Seth Rich. No, he, he didn't. But it it was kind of implied that um, that's who he was. But uh, maybe that's yeah. neither here nor there. Um, so, is there smoking gun evidence? Probably not. Um, but a lot of things pointing to the fact uh, that. Um, that it was him. Yeah. And I mean, well, I mean, the main thing that it hinges on is the fact that he was uh, killed and, and that uh, just, you know, um, I suppose, coincidental shooting, you know, um, that happened uh, around, the, around the same time. You know, you have leaks coming out of the DNC and the DNC staffer gets killed. Uh, it's easy to see why people would, <clears throat> would question that or put, put two and two together, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, what do we expect? You know, I mean, if, if that, that kind of information obviously would be very, um, the, again, it's, you know, it's obviously circumstantial, but the other thing that suggests in a certain sense, in one sense anyway, that uh, there's something to the Seth Rich story is the extent to which, uh, the, the extent of the backlash against, uh, like uh, Sean Hannity or Fox News talking talking about it, suggesting that that, that he he was murdered or that he was the leaker, you know, um, because um, if that's you know if that's just a silly contention and it's actually not true, well, I don't know. Is there any cause for people to get so worked up about it? Uh, it's hard to tell, you know, in that situation just by someone's reaction to to something you say, whether or not uh, you know. If I accuse one of you two guys of 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 being a you know, whatever, a burglar. Uh, if you get so worked up about it, you know, it's the, the kind of the man doth protest too much in a certain sense, you know, so it's, mm-hmm. it's hard it's hard to judge that, you know. But yeah. the real the real situation here, or the, the, I think the main point is that um, that story, uh, why it might have, the Seth Rich story or allegation may have pushed a lot of buttons is that it brought into question as you were saying, Alan, it brought in, it brings into question, at least brings up the idea of, is Russia really, or did Russia really hack our elections and uh, that whole situation, you know, um, and, and threatens, if only, you know, to a small extent or to some extent or in potential, threatens to undermine that groundswell that has risen up since Trump came in of, of, of an attack against uh, against Russia, effectively, and to try and make sure that Russia is persona non grata forever. That nobody in America should ever do any business with Russia, and that the Trump administration should not, under any circumstances, um, do any deals, any positive deals with Russia. Russia has to be public enemy, public American enemy number one forever. Mm-hmm. And Americans and the American establishment, the American government, whoever's whatever administration is in there, must at every turn seek ways to screw Russia over. That's the message, you know, um, that's what they're aiming for. That's what they, and, you know, that's understandable. And it gets us actually to what you mentioned at the beginning of the show, Alan, uh, Zbigniew new Brzezinski, who died a few days ago. Um, the kind of one of the, at least public, the public face or one of the public faces of the, the architecture of the, of the great game or the great geopolitical game between, you know, 
world powers or whatever that's been going on for a few few centuries, uh, but has its as a modern incarnation as well. And he uh, there's a quote by him um, that I saw somewhere as a result of of, of his passing that um, where he more or less said that Eurasia was vitally important, i.e. the landmass of Europe and Asia from sea to sea, basically, um, was vitally, vitally important for American uh, America's position as global hegemon or its position as at the top of the heap or near the top of the heap and that uh, the extent to which America can remain and dominate as much of Eurasia as possible and uh, for as long as possible, that will determine whether or not America stays uh, on top or top of the heap. Um, and of course, uh, a major player, the major player perhaps in, in Eurasia is is Russia. And it is at odds obviously with America and America's attempt, attempt to dominate uh, the whole world, including Eurasia. Uh, it's pushing back against America. It's seriously uh, threatened American hegemony in that sense in, in Eurasia and has been working against uh, American plans for, for quite a few years. So it's no surprise that you would have this response in the US uh, from the kind of deep state and the ones that want to control the world and make sure America remains the global hegemon forever. Uh, it's not it's not surprising that they would have that they would have produced this ridiculous hysterical uh, anti-Russian rhetoric that we've seen, uh, particularly since Trump, but really since last year, since they concocted the idea of uh, you know hacking our election and stuff. You know, it's not surprising that they would come up with that because it's uh, they, they want that all costs to. Uh, make sure that Russia is kept in its place because Russia, if it's not kept in its place, and even if Russia were just to do normal business deals with America, if, if, if Trump administration were to simply, you know, look towards uh, making mutually beneficial deals with Russia, uh, for them that by implication means that they America loses, you know. It's not so much that America would, it's not so much a fear of America losing anything that scares them, it's that if Russia gains and continues to gain, then by definition America will lose, and that's true from a from a kind of across the board, just from resources, geopolitics, you know, the location, you know, the the, the, the outlines of the world map. That that is true. That if Russia Russia is Russia in conjunction with China and Eurasian countries, major Eurasian countries. Um, and Russia is leading that, along with China, leading that kind of push to reassert uh, Eurasia as the as the center of the world, really, as uh, with eighty percent of the world's population, eighty percent of the world's resources to take its rightful place. And uh, they can't be allowed to do that. Russia can't be allowed to move forward with that uh, because it is, by definition, at the expense of America. But only because America has overextended itself over the past hundred years across all of the world, and is now holding on to it by by all sorts of dirty tricks and and force. Yeah, so a little bit more about Brzezinski. Um, he was the um, kind of security advisor. I forget exactly what his title was. This was National a security national advisor. security advisor under uh, Jimmy Carter um, in, the, in the mid to late 70s. And um, he was, you might say, the architect of... Um, empowering and arming the Mujahideen in Afghanistan against mm -hmm. uh, uh, Russian participation in, uh, in what they viewed was the stabilization of Afghanistan. 
Um, so the, the, the seeds were kind of, um, created, uh, by Brzezinski, uh, as far back as 40 years ago or so. Um, right. he, he kind of, uh, established a very, um, uh, dominant role in, in the, uh, administration of Jimmy Carter, uh, to the point where Carter would defer to Brzezinski in many things. Some, some even considered Carter a geopolitical disciple, uh, of, uh, Brzezinski. And of course he had, uh, all of these degrees in political science and, and honorary positions and, and books and papers that he had written over decades. Um, so he had all of his cachet. He was, uh, he was part of the, uh, Trilateral Commission, or wrote for the Trilateral Commission, the, the Bilderbergers, uh, the um, Council for Foreign Relations. Uh, some people thought that he was the democratic uh, kind of counterpart to uh, Henry Kissinger's Republican uh, deep state um, head figure, or, or or kind of behind the scenes, if not in in, in the forefront of the scenes of of geopolitical policy in the U.S. Um, he, I'm, I'm trying to, I, I was reading a bunch of, uh, papers and policies by him early today. And it seems like, you know, for a while he, he may have had more reasonable points of view on certain issues. Um, like taking part in the strategic, um, uh, the SALT two it was called, uh, which was a kind of a, a limitation of uh, nuclear arms with Russia. Uh, he he spoke out against the war, the first war in Iraq, or the second one, and and said that it it kind of undermines U.S. credibility. Um, but then you reconcile that with his rabid anti-Russian um, kind of vehement uh, point of view, where, where Russia had to be suppressed at all costs. It, it it's like he had. Uh, I don't know if it's correct to say two different personalities or some kind of split. And, and so I was just wondering, you know, if like where that comes from or if, if the question even matters, uh, you know, you have all kinds of politicians who on one hand have uh, very reasonable um, kind of pro-social policies. And on the other hand, they're, they're all for destruction and, and, uh, and imperial pursuits around the world. Uh, so maybe that's just a kind of standard camouflage or, or substance that, that a politician uh, is made up of. They know that they have to sound reasonable or in certain areas to, to, to justify or cover up for certain other um, really kind of pathological uh, policies that they want to see brought mm. through. I think those those kind of politicians. I mean, politicians, historians, or, or political historians that are also politicians are people who know a bit about the history of the world, and and even just ordinary politicians who don't necessarily know much about the history of the world have an understanding that I think they come from a very different kind of worldview from us, which is, uh, and even it's a worldview that a lot of people have, but definitely people who study history and and who see themselves as tasked with uh, with being the leaders at this stage in in history or whatever. Uh, they look back and they say, you know, <clears throat> um, you know, war and conflict uh, is a is an enduring uh, and almost defining aspect of, of of human history and human experience, and and that uh, wars 
have to be fought. You know, uh, war is a necessity. It's just the rules of the game type of thing. They take a very pragmatic approach to it. You know, of course, there's no absolutely no heart in it, and they and they take it to excess as well, and, and are very cynical about it, and, and have no problem, obviously. But you know, when you when you start along that path, you can obviously get, you know, you can lose more and more whatever of whatever heart you had. You you you'll lose it all in in in, in justifying uh, the the suffering and, and death of, of people and um, and justifying the you know just the, the state of the world. It's that's the way it always was. That's the way it always will be. And we just have to we have to do do uh, do what's best for us, basically. You know. And so they have a very. I think they tend to have a very pragmatic, if that's the right word. It's 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 not pejorative enough, but it, I think it gets more or less that they're just pra- pragmatic. They're very pra- pragmatic to the point of like cynicism. Yeah, and, exactly, and, and cunning. Yeah, and cunning, and, and there's also a narrative system one, system two kind of thing going on with them as well. Obviously, as there is with most human beings, and um, so so for them, war is not something to you know to 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 shed any tears over, you know, and, or, or the deaths of a lot of people is nothing to shed any tears over. And once you've accepted that, it's a necessity. I mean, that's pretty. It's a, it's a big. Uh, it's a pretty big step to take, you know, but once you've accepted that, then uh, obviously you can go downhill pretty fast, you know, where you can just say, well, we need more, we need more. It's And you can blame the fact that that's the way it always was, that's the way it always will be. And it kind of might makes right type of thing, uh, the ethos of, of or, or a worldview or a, a vision of, of life is uh, uh, of, of might makes right, that if you're in, in a position to, uh, to dictate terms under under threat of destruction, well then, you should do it. So there's no, there's no scope or no no aspect it seems of them uh, questioning that and and thinking of a, I suppose of a better world or a different world where that where war isn't necessary or war doesn't have to be that way. You know, they they would probably see themselves as too intelligent to be so naive mm-hmm. as to think that you can have such a such a world. Mm-hmm. And if we don't do it, someone else will. There's all right. sorts of rationalizations and stuff, you know, and, and of course that's what that leads to the deaths of millions of people and it being it apparently being fine, you know. Um, I mean, you know, getting to the point, like, it, what made me say this was that you quoted kind of, or didn't quote him, but you referenced that Brzezinski was against the Iraq War uh, and he, uh, he said, or afterward, after the fact anyway, he said it was a, it was a bad idea because it, uh, it hurt America's reputation. Uh, no shit. No shit. That's the least of the things that it did, Mr. Brzezinski. <laughs> it also killed 1.5 million Iraqis, but of course, that's not really. That's just par for the course, right? Not not only that, Joe, but he's spoken out critically uh, against uh, Israel's policy towards Palestinians, and uh, yeah. as recently as the past few years. So you know, this kind of reminds me a little bit of, um, and, and it's something we've mentioned here on the show previously. Um, Andrew Lobachowski, uh, who wrote Political Ponderology, uh, a book that we, we've referenced a number of times uh, because it so aptly describes uh, not only how pathological psychopaths rise to positions of, of political power and other seats of power um, of various kinds, uh, but also the, the influence of their thinking 
has a has a way of negatively affecting those around them who may not be psychopaths, but who mm-hmm. don't realize how subject they are to the, the the type of psychopathic thinking that they're being influenced by. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, as the story goes, Lobachowski, you know, sends off the manuscript uh, to Brzezinski thinking, you know, fellow uh, political compatriot, you know, someone who who is definitely in a seat of influence, who uh, who's also Polish and, and uh, who has the intellectual capacity certainly to understand um, and also the, the experience and the position to have possibly seen this phenomena for himself. And um, so he sends the manuscript uh, to Brzezinski. They, they have a few exchanges. And, uh, and in the end, uh, Brzezinski like, never responds. And, and Lobachevsky uh, concludes that he kind of squashed the whole possibility of bringing this knowledge to U.S. politics effectively. And, uh, you know, you just have to wonder if at some point, some part of Brzezinski, um, you know, whatever heart that, whatever, whatever little piece of heart was left in the man realized to the extent that I'm just speculating here, but, uh, he might've realized the extent to which it's true. Uh, I doubt that, that, that it was even a conscious process on his part, but certainly this isn't something that, um, you know, it was an indictment of him. Uh, political ponderology. Uh, it's all about him in a way, whether, whether he's the, the psychopath in the position of power influencing others or if he was on the other side of the shoe. Um, so that, that's just an interesting piece about Brzezinski as relates to like one of the most, uh, useful books I think we've come across in, in helping to describe our reality right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, just, um, just looking, Looking back at the guy, he's going to be remembered far more, I think, for his uh, his Russophobia, his paranoia, uh, and for being the kind of dean of of uh, geopolitical mayhem in the form of seeding uh, uh, large proxy militaries against Russia and other nations to destabilize them. Even if in other statements he he speaks out against that sort of thing, mm. that's what mm. he was a proponent of. That's his legacy. So. Um, not very many good things to say about the man, ultimately. Well, just one thing to say, you mentioned about his statements in the last few years criticizing Israel's treatment of Palestinians. I think, um, I think that's probably more, a, more, um, a more common viewpoint than people probably acknowledge or believe. Because I think, I'm, I'm just speculating here, but I, I guess that if you would honestly poll um, U.S. politicians they'd probably overwhelmingly have negative opinions about Israel um, in general. But the, but the, the fact is that they did, I, I think mostly just because they're resentful because they know that they, you know, that they're either being blackmailed or, you know, being totally, mm. that the, the U S is really relationship is totally exploited. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think that, I think that for the large part, like American intelligence and politics don't like Israel but they're forced no. to like it. Right. And so any, anytime you get, uh, you know, a politician that's, that speaks out against, you know, Israel's human rights abuses, it's again, it's not really about the human rights abuses. They just don't like Israel because, um, because they're resentful that, it, that Israel basically doesn't controls them. Doesn't, right. Yeah. 
isn't isn't an underling basically like they right. like to think everybody else should be. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just waiting for Kissinger to pop off. Yeah. Well, we've we've got and a then, list. With, and then Soros. Kissinger, Soros, uh, George W. Bush, uh, Ro- David Rockefeller. Um, there's mm. a few more, but uh, yeah, they're all getting Ro- there. In Cheney. Is David Rockefeller still alive? I'm pretty sure he is. He's <laughs> like nine, the Mandela he, he's, he's like 130 or something. <laughs> yeah. Is it Nelson? Who? Uh, no, not Nelson. Who was a recent Rockefeller who passed away? Oh, I don't know. Like three weeks ago, maybe. Did one? Yeah. 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 Didn't somebody die? Somebody in the chat room there look that up first. <laughs> it wasn't it John D. Rockefeller? Yeah, that, yeah, um, didn't register for me. Da- but no, David Rockefeller, yeah. Well, He's, the- uh, no, John D. was the older guy, yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he was his father, I think. Anyway. The the sad fact of the matter is that these guys have had such a they've created such an infrastructure. Uh, He's dead. He died in March. Sorry. Oh, did March? David. David Rockefeller. You missed that one. Oh, I forgot about that. Sorry. Ago. <laughs> well, I'm spreading fake news. <laughs> oh no. I mean, it's you know we we joke uh, and maybe we shouldn't uh, because you know if if they die they die. Uh, and and nothing really good can come of their death, no. even even if they're you know even if they are still influencing things to a certain degree. But they've created such a uh, such a uh, an infrastructure uh, of of intelligence and business and corporate confluence and, and military and think tanks and uh, socioeconomic policies and and all sorts of um, all sorts of uh, kind of interconnecting webs of, of power and oppression uh, that um, it, it's almost meaningless. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they have, they have uh, ponderized and uh, I mean, they're, they're responsible. They've done their worst already. Um, and uh, we're seeing the fruits of that worst right now, pretty much. Um, and, you know, the guys that are really active and pulling the strings, most of whom, you know, we don't even know who they are in all likelihood. Right. Uh, they're that smart and cunning and, and they, um, you know, they might be making phone calls from their houses in, uh, in the Caribbean. Uh, well, or, it's almost you know. like, it's almost like a given because if you, if you consider the situation or the system we have right now, uh, who would be an elected politician? You know, um, if, if, they, if they had another option. I mean, obviously, politicians who are in it for power and, you know, position and wealth and whatever, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, that's that's what they're going for. And, and But those people have to, you know, have to actually cons- be concerned about getting reelected every four or five years or whatever, you know. And they have to spend some money on the public and they have to go and shake hands and all that kind of stuff. Can you imagine if there was an option, if there was an option where you could just have that power that they are seeking and uh, but never have to be never have to be questioned on it never have to justify yourself or be I mean, a public eye yeah I mean why would you bother you know people think it's this illusion that you know like being in the public eye or whatever okay maybe there's a bit of prestige but we're, we're off pretty thin I think or we're off pretty quickly whenever um, 
uh, after after a while, you know, you get tired of, you know, it's not cool to be on the news anymore. It's not cool to be in the public eye anymore. In fact, it's more of a headache, you know. And anyway, these people are after power and influence. So if there's an option to wield power and influence from behind the scenes where you never were scrutinized by the public and never had to cow to or in any way, even if it was in a fake way, you never had to appease the public just to, 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 to so that they would uh, give you another four, four years or something. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty low level, if you know what I mean. So I think pol- politicians in the power structure, public politicians are, um, are pretty low uh, in that power structure because they're the ones who have to go cap in hand kind of thing to the public and ask them, please, you know, I mean, the, the great unwashed, basically. You have to actually, okay, maybe you can you know, throw money at it and you can be fairly well sure that you're going to get reelected, but you still have to go and pretend, you know, to these people that you're so much better than, you know, that you rule over. You have to go and ask them to reelect you. Please put me in power again. No, I mean, the people with the real power are the ones who never have to do that, you know, uh, behind the scenes and are there for as long as they want, you know. Um, Mm-hmm. No, career civil. That's why you hear this term career civil servants as well uh, a lot, you know, as the people who, uh, in, in the West, you know, in, in Europe and in America, those are the people um, who who are the real instruments of, of this deep state, you know, people who, and you'd have to identify the positions in each country, but uh, there are those positions, you know, and I mean, in the UK, for example, they're basically just called high level civil servants They're in the civil service. And they rise up, and there's different departments that deal with pretty much the same things that you know government uh, deals with. But they're functionaries, but they're quite high up, you know, and they uh, and they pull a lot of strings, and, and and they're the ones who, and they've been there since they were, you know, been in in it since they were twenty or in, in their twenties, and now they're fifty, sixty, seventy years old, you know, and they're still still doing it, and they know a lot more. You, you imagine the amount of uh, information and kind of or what's that phrase? Total situation awareness. Or total information awareness those people would have haven't been in you know at the helm basically behind the scenes in power pulling strings etc for 50 years across maybe you know seven eight different governments various wars you know and they've seen it all happening you know they know how it works and they've been making it happen in a certain sense or been directing it uh, on, on a certain course i mean those are the people who you know have an incoming administration for lunch, you know, or a new, a new president or prime minister for lunch, you know. I mean, we've talked about this before. The idea that the president is suddenly the commander in chief, or the prime minister is suddenly here to make all the decisions, you know, just you know, uh, may have been a member of parliament or maybe not, and suddenly becomes like Trump, and suddenly is in the White House or is in in Ten Downing Street or in uh, somewhere and. The idea that that person is just going to walk in and shake everything up is complete nonsense when you understand how how the country is actually run, you know, by these unelected officials. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, off there. <laughs> well, I think uh, unless we have any other, any other stories we want to cover, I think, I think that's a wrap for today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I reckon. All right. So... Everyone, make sure to stay tuned on SOT.net um, because we'll be covering these stories as they develop, and especially the Manchester bombing because news is still coming out about that. So stay tuned. And um, yeah, Friday, we're going to have another health and wellness show, and we'll see you all next week for another 
edition of either Behind the Headlines or The Truth Perspective. So everyone take care and see you then. Bye, everyone. See ya. Thanks for listening. Have a good evening. (laughs) Bye-bye. Take care. Arrivederci. Ciao, ciao. (laughs) That's the same language.